Greetings, everybody. Merry later Christmas to all of you. Thanks for tuning in to This Week in Mormons. I am Jeff Openshaw, your intrepid host. I almost said erstwhile, but that would be some weird foreshadowing. I'm not going to be your erstwhile host. I'm here. This is all this. You're stuck with me. Anyway, we hope you all had a great Christmas. Glad you're here with us this week. And we're excited to dive into some news here and some end of year recapping. And to do it all, who better than the king of erudition himself, Jared Gillins? I, I would contend no one better. No one better, Jeff, exactly. than me. The king of erudition. If, his, if, if you were to be crowned, christened, your name would be King Erudite. Wow. I'm, I'm honored. The, the only thing I would have been more honored by would have been uh, king of eloquence. That, that would have really just flattered me to the bone. Okay, we could do that too. How how was your uh, how was your Christmas? Everything Christmas was wonderful. Here? I mean, I it, it could have been a little better. We had um, I had a small COVID exposure scare. I, I uh, the week before Christmas, I did it. Went to an ophthalmologist because we had we had just barely met our deductible, and I needed. Uh, I won't go into it, but I needed a couple things to do, done, and I was like, you know, the American healthcare system, everyone, gaming right. your deductible, <laughs> right? Stuff, so I was like, I, bet, I better go uh, to the ophthalmologist before the end of the year, so that yeah. it will be covered yeah. at ninety percent. Um, and you know, the ophthalmologist was a very responsible man. He he washed his hands for like. 20 seconds when he came into the room, he was wearing a mask. Every time he touched my face for any reason, he'd first use hand sanitizer. We were both wearing masks. And if he, if, you know, if it could be helped, he's sat basically across the room from me, but it's an eye exam. And so most of the time he was sitting about six inches from my face. And then the next day I got a phone call and I was expecting to get results from a, a scan that they had right, done on my right. retinas. And instead it was the receptionist saying, uh, we're here. To, I called to tell you that the doctor tested positive for COVID this morning. Oh, so, <laughs> so I had to go into self isolation. Um, it was yeah, it was just about a week, just a little over a week before Christmas, and we were planning on hanging out with Kelsey's parents. And so, did you, you know, do and, any of that, or were you just isolated? Well, so we stayed away from them for a week, and I monitored and you know was watching my you know temperature and everything for symptoms. Uh, on day seven. It was the day before Christmas Eve, and I had no symptoms. Day eight, Christmas Eve, I went to a local, uh, like a urgent care type place where they had a have a good reputation for getting people in, and they do, they're doing the rapid test, which you know they say is not as accurate if you don't have symptoms. But still, I thought you know it's day eight, I'm going to get a rapid test, just get a little peace of mind. I got a negative result back. And so I told Kelsey's parents and he said, you know, we want to do whatever you're comfortable with. We never, we don't want to put you in any kind of harm's way at all. So what we did is we, we mostly didn't spend time with them. And the little time that we did spend with them, we wore masks. We stayed across, you know, on the other side of the room from them when we were at Kelsey's sister's place. And they came over to our place for a little bit to give us our presence. And they, again, they, we just, they, they wore masks. We wore masks. We stayed across the room from each other. Yeah. You know, and now I'm on day, what, is this 12 or I think I'm on day 12 and I still don't have any symptoms. So looks like everything's fine. But yeah, it was so, it, Christmas could have been a little more ideal, but it was still fun. It was very merry. I got some great presents. I gave some good presents. Uh, felt good. Anything of note? I mean, let's make it about the materialism. Did you receive anything amazing? Uh, I Kelsey got me one of those bamboo steamers, you know, that you like, yeah. you know, you see in like Chinese and other Asian restaurants, yeah. you know, for yeah. making steam buns and dumplings and things like that. Uh, and it wasn't even on my list or anything, but she got it for me. And I, immediately I started thinking of like m- things I would want to make with it. So it was, 
it was like she 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 anticipated a desire for a cooking implement that I didn't even know I wanted, and but I, I'm very excited to try it out. My mom got me a spider for the kitchen. If you know yeah. what that is, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, I've needed one for various forms of frying instead of they're having to use tongs or something else. I've needed a, a spider. Get they're good for frying. They're good for blanching. They're good for all sorts of things. I'm, I'm, I'm excited to both fry and blanch. All Anything else? What, what, how was your Christmas? Fun time? Oh, it's good. I, um, you've got kids who are at a really magical age for having Christmas. Was it really fun with them? It was really fun with them. It was fun too. So uh, my in-laws came into town, you know, COVID be darned. They they were here. And so they they spent a week with us up through Christmas uh, morning. And that was great. Kids have a lot of fun with them and it's wonderful. And you're right. It is a magical age. The youngest one, no, he doesn't. He's eight months old. He doesn't care. Sure. Yeah. He's but, not getting it. Um, it is fun. I remember a couple of years ago when my oldest was like two and a half. And that was the first year he seemed to kind of get it. And there's still this video I have when he opened up like this big Tonka tow truck. And it's the most adorable video in the world. He just goes, a tow truck, a tow truck. Ah, a and he gets so happy. It's so cute. Yeah. And now that he's older, he's super into it. And now his younger brother's three. And so the two of them together were just like, I spent the whole time saying one at a time, slow down, yeah. slow down. Cause they just wanted to, they're just, they were just running like, all right, Riggs, this one's for you. This one's for me, Riggs. All right. And they were just so psyched. I mean, we, we used to not even put out the presents before Christmas because we thought they'd get destroyed. We went for it this year and actually put them out as they were wrapped and prepped and things to build hype. And they did pretty well with it. And it was fun watching them, uh, shake presents and try to figure out what they were and seeing guy be like, this one's a book. I'm like, well, yes it is, but I'm not going to say that to you. Um, so it was fun. They had a good time, scooters and all kinds of random stuff. And they're, they're still getting things because, because of the COVID adult postal service, which has fewer people working and more mail to handle. Um, there's still some outstanding packages on their way, apparently, which is great Christmas. It'll be like, you know, we're, we're working towards epiphany, which I think you'll appreciate Jared, by the That's time right. they get the 12 it, days it of Christmas are ongoing in the open shot household. Yes. So I'm hoping that the final ones show up on January 6th. That is that is my hope and prayer. And you'll be like, this one's direct from Gaspar, Melchior, and Balthazar. Exactly. And your kids oh, so will be like, good. of course, you know, of course. I think the hardest thing with kids that age is just trying to instill in them the real meaning of Christmas. And I've, we worked really hard at it this year to remind them, like, why do we give the gifts? And now they say, because the three wise men gave gifts to Jesus. I'm, we're like, yes, that is why we do this. That's the root of it. Like, let's remember. Nice. Make it, you know, try to make that connection back to. Try savior. to make the connection. Uh, you know, I'm sure there'll be some more work there. But that was fun. And then my, my wife's uh, sister lives in Charlottesville, about an hour and 45 minutes, two hours from here. So we took the in-laws down there, saw them. They're part of our safe bubble. And then we left the in-laws down there when we came back uh, so they can spend time down there. It's going to be great. And now we're just in the weird little lull between Christmas and New Year's when like nothing happens. Right. And like, yeah, yeah, like I got onto work today, you know, online and (laughs) there was nothing going on. Yeah. It was very slow. None of our clients are in, so it's like no one's sending work I mean, to us or anything. Some of the bigger firms are smart enough just to make that a free extra week off. Like when I worked with a lot of Deloitte people, they all get this week is just off. It's just free vacation time for all of them, which I feel like you might as well do because nothing goes on, especially not if you're in government. I think my company has a much more penny-pinching approach to yeah. such things than Deloitte does. So yeah, they're, 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 if they don't have to give us more paid time off, they will not. <laughs> <laughs> That's good to remember. Um, so anyways, good times all around. This, this is our last episode, of course, of the year uh, for TWIM. Next next week's episode, it'll be 2021. We'll be starting season 12 of TWIM, uh, which is pretty remarkable. 
You just count the seasons. You don't have like a weird fiscal year. You count the seasons just by if it rolls over into January the next year. If I were to be super, super official, our first episode was in the third week of January of 2010. So I've rounded down by three weeks. I figure that's fair. If we'd have started in May or something like that, I would not have done it. But since we're basically right when the year started, that's I just do that. So yeah, it's funny when people get real nitpicky. Like I've always. I, you know, not, I'm not like a huge car guy, but you know, I appreciate some classic cars and I'll, I'll say something about the 1964 Mustang and I'll get corrected. It's the 1964 and a half Mustang. Like, that's oh, true. okay. That's true. But still like, why, why? But there, it's not like there was a different 64 Mustang. Like, why do we have to be so nitpicky? These things matter. Cars round, matter, round down like Jeff does. <laughs> I'm not, I'm the wrong guy to talk to. If you want to talk about propriety with vehicles, I am kind of a car aficionado despite the fact i drive a 22 year old toyota camry and couldn't be happier about it oh nice i drive a 17 year old camry right man that's the dream you probably have the slightly updated if you have yeah 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 because mine was oh no it, yeah it's like the the xe or whatever mine was the 97 through 2001 model so you oh, I see, the, yeah no mine has the, you know it's a 2003 it's got the useless spoiler on the back oh yeah it has heated man. seats and it which i oh. do appreciate here in southeastern idaho or I guess Eastern Idaho. Anyway, wherever I am in Idaho, it's it's cold, man. You're living the dream, buddy. I'm not driving my Camry much right now. Not not many places to go. In fact, I had to jump it the other day because I hadn't driven it for like three weeks and it yeah. wouldn't even start. No, I so. hear you. No, I, I've, I've, I, every time I look at the budget and like how much we've spent on gas, I'm like, we don't spend anything on gas. We don't go anywhere. I know. That's the life. Yeah. Well, um, I was going to do it later, but I think since we're kind of reminiscing, it's the new year, new year's coming. We might as well do a quick year in review. I think it's a, it's a great thing to do. We have other news stories this week, but I, uh, for now, what I like to do with year in review is of course, look back, where were we in January of this year? And 2020 is quite the year to do year in review, as I'm sure many of you can imagine. Thankfully, not everything this year has been about COVID exclusively, uh, even though it has affected significantly, you know, the way we church more or less. So it's kind of, it has been kind of funny to look back at some of these, especially January and February. Right. Was just, I was just thinking, wouldn't it be great if the Tree of Life augmented reality app was the biggest story of the year? Like, oh man, remember how cool that was and how not disappointing that was in any way? <laughs> I can't believe it's been a year since that thing came out. It's so weird. It's such a bizarre little app, but it's still here. I still yeah. have it on my phone. I haven't used it probably since we started. I wonder how if it still functions. Let's see if I can make like, let's, it's right here. Okay. Look around, look around, how lucky we are to be alive right now. <laughs> look around, look around. Um, well, it's not doing much, but if you missed it, yes, there was a Tree of Life, and there still is a Tree of Life augmented reality app, which lets you like bring the Tree of Life sequence to life in your house. Yeah. That's a fun idea. It's still loading. I always so, wondered, I mean, you know, they really could have done some fun things with it so that, you know, if you looked out the window at your neighbor's house, it would like take away the foundation so that their house appeared to be floating in the air and then they would be pointing and mocking at you. I was about to say, yeah, that they should make your neighbor's home the great spacious building. That'd be awesome. Yeah, I mean, that's the obvious choice. I would love that. I would love that very much. Uh, another thing that happened real quick in uh, January, they changed temple clothing. This is, of course, part of President Nelson's, I think, crusade to be practical in a lot of areas uh, with the church. Basically, these are simple clothing adjustments. They don't, don't, as they said in the first presidency statement, they don't change uh, doctrine or symbolism, but are designed to enhance members' experience in the temple and make the ceremonial clothing easier to put on, care for, and afford. So really, it's pretty, they simplified respectfully the design for the veil and robe. They removed the plastic inserts from caps, which is fine. 
Um, Those were always, I always felt like that made the cap more uncomfortable and also look weirder in yeah. a way too. I, I, so it's I, little I, thing, I won't miss that at all. Yeah. Yeah. Little things like that, more durable fabric for the other components. Um, nothing too wild here. And the, the church even had a video about it, but I think that was great. Uh, it also reminds me though, that uh, garments are not cheap. They're not you terribly expensive garment, either. Like they're not, it's not like they're like, you know, you're buying Calvin Klein underwear or something like that, but yeah, but it's if you not buy a pack of Hanes. It's significantly cheaper to buy. Sure. No, if you're like, Hey, we need to replace the garments. You know, my wife and I definitely have to like make it, item in the budget for it it's it's not an insignificant cost yeah i mean that's it's and then they wonder why people don't buy let them get all shredded and torn up but it's like hey man this cost me like seven dollars per complete set maybe it is like calvin klein underwear that's fifty dollars for a week's worth of garments basically yeah that's yeah other fun things happened in January, and Jared, you can jump in on any of these two all you want. Uh, this isn't just me rambling. Uh, the church announced the new handbook, which we're still was, updating. Yeah, and then it was the, the cool thing is that it was combined. Right, there's always been like, yeah. well, even then, like I remember when they gave everybody kind of general access to handbook two. That was kind of a big deal. They just you know put it on yes. the gospel. Suddenly, it was like downloadable on the gospel library app, and I thought, oh, what what's this? And so yeah, for a while, but still people would kind of whisper and say, well, what's so secret about handbook one? Why can only, you know, like bishops and stick presidents and stuff view it. And so, yeah, it was super interesting to ha- to see them combine the two handbooks into one and just make it generally available, which it, it's, it takes away a lot of the, mis- the mystique. Cause I, I mean, I right. had seen, I'd read handbook one and it and really, there it wasn't happened. anything that, I don't no, know. Nothing too crazy. I mean, it's it was yeah, and I think that's great that we just leveled the playing field like that. Sure. Like pretty, yeah. I mean, even if it had wacky stuff like you know, against hypnotism and right. all all these weird things you could dig into, but for the most is part, the hypnotism it was thing still in there. I can't remember. I think a component of it is still in there. We're actually yeah. we'll have we'll talk a little bit today. There's a, there's been some more. Yeah, that's right. There is a story about the to that handbook. So, yeah. Um. Missionaries in Liberia numbers were reduced. That's not a big one. Saints Volume Two came out. I still haven't read it. I've read. I read for the first volume. I really so like. It. I. I haven't gotten to volume two yet. Is this a bad case of sequelitis, where no one, just no one, the hype well, is it's gone? Hard because so I mean, it's stuff that I want to know, but also then like I've seen people saying like, oh yeah, you know, we're getting ready to do you know Doctor Covenants and Church History and Come Follow Me, and so people were saying like, I really want to get into the both of the Saints volumes, and I was like, well, everything that we're going to cover in Come Follow Me and Doctor Covenants, it's all covered by saints volume one so like it's not like there's a huge impetus to enhance your ability to have a good discussion in uh gospel doctrine class to read the second volume it's like this is the one where you say no i really want to know these things regardless of how well it's gonna aid me in my you know church interactions and so i mean i've obviously everything in our gospel study should be you know (laughs) i want to know these things regardless of how well it's going to help me speak in uh, church but I don't know. It's just harder to get around to, I think, because there's just all sorts of other things going on. Come follow me in the Book of Mormon. You know, uh, we're, we're encouraged to reread conference talks, and that's everything and like that uh, Wonder Woman just came out. There's just so much. Wonder Woman 84, and, and you no. have to decide whether you love it or hate it. Um, I was average on it. Just so, okay. You're you're in a very rare camp. Everything I haven't watched it yet, but every reaction I've seen I'm a moderate, ha- has been. Moderate. Um, yes, you are a moderate. Uh, every reaction I've seen online has either been like, oh man, that was so fun. I loved how over the top it was. And then the other end of the spectrum is that was ridiculously stupid. I hated how over the top it was. So, oh, I will say this though. Maybe it's just because it takes place in DC and here I live. 
I created an IMDB account specifically so I could go in there and write content about the goofs and the oh, things because that because of the silver line I saw. <laughs> yeah, that was like the start of it. And then the more I thought about it, I was like, oh no, this is a problem. Oh my, oh boy, guys, guys I don't expect <laughs> perfection. But I mean, come on. The silver line, give me a break. What, what Jared is talking about is there's a scene where they go down, they go down into the metro, and Steve, um, Chris Pine, one of the Chris's, is just marveling at this metro station. You know, and the DC metro stations are these beautiful, brutalist caves. They're pretty awesome. And the metro no, and train that probably by, is the only time where I would combine those two terms. It is beautiful and brutalist at the yeah, same time. I love them. I mean, they're gorgeous. To New, no, they're so the New cool. York subway, which is claustrophobic. Yeah, I mean, DCs are great. They're nicely planned out. They're air conditioned. They're great. Anyway, it's not a big deal, but they're there and she wants to, sh- they're going to ride the metro and he gets to see a car, like a metro train go by, which blows his mind because, you know, he died in 1918. Um, Except I, they made no effort whatsoever to make the metro station look like it was 1984. So it had like all the signs up for the lines that exist today that didn't exist in 1984. Just stuff like that. And I was like, come on, guys. Come on. You're guys. like, that stop doesn't exist on that the one, line I mean, yet. That one, the fact that the stop they were in, you could see on the wall, was Lunfont Plaza. So if they were getting on the metro at Lunfont Plaza, where did they go? Because the next, the, in the next scene, they're at the Hirshhorn Modern Art Museum. And you get off at Lunfont Plaza to get to that museum. If you get on at Lenfant and go somewhere, you are only going farther away from the museum. There's no way to get closer to it from there. I, yeah, that's true. Ooh, from the yellow cool. line, because yeah, like it, they would have had to been on the blue line and got off at Smithsonian if they wanted to get, but then you you're know, hiking all the way from the Smithsonian stop. All yeah. The back. It doesn't make sense, but, I mean, to- Lon, but Lenfant isn't even on the blue line. So, no, well, it intersects with the blue line because remember, it, does it? Yeah, because yellow and green. I've been yellow and green intersect for with four months, and I've already forgotten which. Okay, remember, line. yellow and green are going northbound, southbound, and then right there, the blue, orange, silver. You're right. Is going you're right. You're right. Yeah, I totally I forgot. Know. I'm not a DC person anymore. I guess I've officially. Hey, anyway, the- other church, other year review stuff. Some of my favorites. Um, when the church changed the Wi-Fi, what oh, audacity! Yeah. After years of Pioneer 47, the church changed the Wi-Fi, the name of it, because they could legitimately did not want to call it LDS Access anymore because of LDS. So it became Leahona or something like that. Yeah. And then also you had to have a new password, which is Alma 3738 uh, about the Leahona. Uh, And then, but every time, at least every day you log in, you get a splash screen reminding you that this is to be used for like church stuff. Not Well, the nice thing too, because, and I think maybe they rationalize this, uh, because of the that daily reminder, they they unblocked certain things that were normally blocked. So, like as a seminary teacher, I was happy that I could access YouTube. Yeah, you know, and it's not like I was using YouTube all the time, but I before I had to like download videos and save them and stuff. But like now, it, once you accepted the responsibility for whatever content you were accessing, they'd let you get on YouTube. And, and you know, there's plenty of uplifting stuff on YouTube and I used it uh, for my teaching. So it was kind of nice. It was a good trade-off between the pain of having to re-sign in every day, but also being able to, you know, access things that were useful as, as far as, you know, church calling capacity. Yeah. Do you remember how excited we were about having the dates announced for the DC Temple Open House? Yeah, that ended that up was being fun. a big letdown. Back then at the end of February when we just saw like COVID happening in the distance and said, whatever, whatever. This is just problems in Asia. We're good. Right. Problems so in Asia happened. have never spilled over to anywhere else in the world. <laughs> it's made me think of the Princess Bride. Exactly. <laughs> Land wars in Asia. Yep. 
Yeah, so that was a bummer. We were supposed to have that temple already, but uh, COVID had other plans. And then we fast forward into March. It's mid-March. The week of like March 11th is when like everything hit the fan. That is when COVID mania happened. It was on March 11th that they announced they were going to close the conference center to the public for conference. They were still going to do it in there, but it was going to be closed to the public. So I think even at that stage, like you'd still have everyone on the stand, choir performing, I guess, but just public not in there. That was it. They also decided to close the MTCs and change the way that people were taught. And that's still an ongoing effort. Then by the 12th, they just decided to start closing all the temples. They canceled BYU's uh, commencement ceremony and women's conference. And... Then by the end of the day on the 12th, I remember this. I, I remember we were wondering, like, when's this going to end at some point? And we, I think you and I even talked about it on the show. Like, how's this going to go eventually? Right. First presidency says, we're just shutting it down. Church has been shut down globally. No meetings. And that's, we've been crawling back ever since. Yeah. And it had been like, literally, it had been about 100 years since anything like that had happened. So it was crazy. And then it was a week later they decided conference center conference itself wasn't even going to be in the conference center. It would be they never disclosed the location formally, but it was in the the uh, like training theater of the church office building, uh, which is where they wound up having it, you know, mere weeks later after they announced. Which is it. great. It was just, you know, upon reflection a really great blessing, right? I mean, again, if this had happened 100 years ago and it did happen 100 years ago where they actually just canceled the general conference because yeah, that's of all the, you can do. the influenza epidemic or pandemic. Um, and so well, the how, how church would have been during all this time too. Right. So the that. fact that we live in a time where they could still safely, uh, record and broadcast uh, live broadcast, um, this conference and you know, that we didn't have to cancel it. it and it's funny. Cause I remember we t- us talking when we did the conference recap that some of the talks felt a little out of place because we were expecting, we were hoping for a little more like addressing what was going on and things like that. But you could tell that these talks had been written for just a, Business as usual, April 2020 general conference. And so, and it was all uh, the Joseph Smith stuff we're supposed to be doing the first vision, too. Right, exactly. It was the restoration stuff. And so, we were like, oh, this feels a little weird. Because, yeah, it was supposed to be this special conference like none other before. And on location, we were assuming from church history sites and things like that. And instead, we had a, yeah, like a training room. And, but, but the fact that we still got general conference is like a huge blessing, I think. And it was just, I think, comforting to a lot of people to have that continuity of like, no, we still have general conference. We still get to hear from these people that we revere as spokespeople for the Lord. So that was nice. And we did also get the proclamation. We had that part of it. That did the restoration proclamation. That's right. There's the whole restoration proclamation from president Nelson. He had pre-required a manifesto from the sacred grove. Yeah. So that was cool. You know, they were definitely trying to get that one out. My other big conference takeaway, if you remember, of course, the temple in Shanghai, lots of, a few temples were announced. But that's the one when, had it been in the conference center, you would have heard the, <gasps> right. what? You know, that would have been the big one. And of course it was the big one. He always brings it up to the end. President Nelson knows what he's doing. He knows how to work the room really well with that. Right. And then the the Shanghai government uh, denied that there would be a temple. In China. Yeah. So, so that was fun too. And we've heard nothing about it. So I don't know what's going on with that temple. Well, there. I'm assuming that they, the church kind of realized their error in drawing attention to something and that they, they sent John Huntsman to make it better. To. What's that? They sent John Huntsman to sort it all out. Probably. Anyway, but yeah, I'm assuming that they kind of had to work things back out quietly and probably the Shanghai government is intent on not having this be a very public thing. So that's my assumption, my speculation. Uh, another minor, te- this isn't really a big news, but when the Tuella Temple design came out around the same time, mid-April, it did not have a Moroni. 
which is something we've come to accept now, but it was the first time any of these big Utah temples uh, designs had been revealed with no Angel Moroni. And of course, we've seen that since with uh, with Orem, some of the other ones that are in Taylorsville, but this was new territory. And uh, we've, you know, we've got that whole article about that. If you well, want to see the temple is also going to come up again in our conversation today, I believe. So. Yeah. <laughs> Whenever we get to that. Um, did, did we ever talk about Motab's new logo, you and I? You mean Tabcats? That's the one, Tabcats. <laughs> I apologize. Yes. Uh, I don't know if, I think I did. I think I did. I think I was in on that conversation because I think we talked about how it looked like a bunch of recorders or what was no there was something candles i don't know what it candle was. yeah there's it, it looks like a lot of things besides it looks like a bunch of pens or nuclear warheads pointed towards the earth yeah, yeah, yeah it could be fountain pens it, it looks like so many things that aren't organ pipes so <laughs> oh that was fun but that was a good time we've also got um uh, this is more patting ourselves. I loved our Ben Park interview. We did it. We got more interviews done this year, which was great. It was great. Yeah, that. I've read a lot of good books and talked to a lot of cool people. And uh, Ben Park on the history of Nauvoo and how theocratic Nauvoo rubbed up against democratic America, more or less. That was a pretty yeah. good listen. If you want to find that one, check that out. That was and a good read. read if you want to get that book too. It was a good read. Uh, this nice reminder from May when they started sending missionaries back out again, mere two months into the pandemic in the U.S. And they had to remind families not to congregate in mass at Salt Lake Airport and cause problems for public health safety. Right. Utah has been just crushing it this whole time, folks. Well done, Utah. And I know many of you hate it when I rag on Utah, but you just tee it right up for me. You just tee <laughs> it right up. What is he supposed to do? Ignore it? Uh, anyway, by June, the church announced that October General Conference would also be remote, which we kind of expected. Right. I don't think that was uh, anything. And then right around then, they also decided to postpone the DC Temple Open House indefinitely. We still don't know when that's going to happen. And then they updated the dress guidelines for male missionaries in some circumstances, which means you could potentially see a missionary wearing not a white shirt, not a tie. What? That is interesting. I was just talking with somebody the other day about, so I, I served in the Phoenix mission and at that time, late 90s, early zeros, uh, the Navajo Indian Reservation was within my mission border. So I knew some missionary. I was a Spanish-speaking missionary, but you know, I knew yeah, yeah. a lot of the English speakers. And I knew a couple of elders who served on the reservation. And this was that's not a new thing for like the Navajo Reservation. They wore jeans. Really? They would wear a white shirt, but they didn't wear a tie. They'd often, if they didn't have a short sleeve shirt, they'd roll up their sleeves. I think they did still wear name tags, if I'm not mistaken. But it was much more casual. And so when they were like announcing these updated guidelines, it was sort of like they took like the things that they were doing anyway on a small scale for certain areas or certain missions that you would serve in and just making it more applicable and on a, on a wider scale. Was that also the uh, updated guidelines? It was really, this says specifically male missionaries. Was that also, when did they update the guidelines that said that sisters could wear pants? That was before that that. was before that. Okay. Yes. It might even say in the article when that was, was that in like, I'm all all about link building people. Um, yeah, sister missionaries were given the option to wear pants in certain situations in 2018, about two years ago, just now, wow. December. 20th. So long ago. So long. 
I see them doing their business and they wear their pants. It's great. Good for them. Um, other stuff. We had Russell Stevenson on to talk about, you know, racism. That was a great episode. Mm-hmm. Nyland McBain came on to talk about hundred years of female suffrage and how uh, Latter-day Saint women were involved in that. Jared, you've been here for like all of these. It's true. And that's another great listen. If you want, if, if you're going back at all, feeling nostalgic, whenever you listen to some of our great episodes, that's a really good one as well as the Ben Park. And also I highly recommend, uh, Nyland's, uh, book that it was really, really informative, really well-written. Yeah. In case you can't tell, by the way, everyone, I like to have Jared come and do interviews because he is smarter than me and it oh. lets me coast. That's pretty much what <laughs> so I'm out here. Par- I'd like to paraphrase uh, Dallin H. Oaks here and, and slightly adapt a, a, one of my favorite quotations from him. And I will say, I am no great historian. I am a great user of indexes. <laughs> you are my index, Jared. Congratulations. That's right. Oh. <laughs> uh, other cool thing. In August, they announced an online prayer roll system for the temples, which is great, especially in a time when it's less realistic to get to the temple to submit names to the prayer roll. Now there's yeah. a, a web portal where you can do this. And, you know, and it probably, to me, it makes sense that they probably went ahead and went forward with this adaptation because of COVID. But I would, yeah. I mean, I would assume that that's, that's the direction we were heading anyway. It makes sense to be able to submit things online. I am curious because um, they've also adapted the endowment because of COVID specifically. I'm curious to how much of that will stay after yeah, you, that. Yeah, is for, for the sake of efficacy. efficacy. Honestly, I don't know. I have not lived in an area either a with a functioning temple uh, for for a while, but or b with a temple that is past phase three. So yeah, I haven't been able to see any of those things. Also in September, I love this one. Children of divorced parents could have records and multiple wards. A problem you don't think is a problem until someone points it out to you that it's an issue and you realize, oh yeah, this might affect, you know, oh yeah. No, thousands, seen, hundreds of thousands of kids, right? Yeah. So, no, I've seen it uh, myself and I'm glad. Because pre- what could happen under the old way? You've got a kid, whichever parent has custody, even if both parents might have joint custody, but if the kid, the kid has his records in one ward, whatever that might be, like in mom's ward. But if that kid actually goes every other weekend with one of the parents, and they're both active in the church. If they go to church with dad, they have no records, even though they spend half of their time in another ward. So this allows, it still has sort of a parent-child relationship as far as the records go, not parent-child as far as kids, in that there's still kind of a prime ward where the record is, and then it's sort of on loan in a way to the other ward so they can have just some kind of a record, extend a calling if they want to. Uh, I I joke, that's what teenagers want, two callings. Right. Well, I would (laughs) assume that this would also mean that like if a, you know, if a a youth was going, wanted to go on a temple trip, but they didn't have their limited use recommend that they wouldn't have to like wait till they were with their other parents so they could get an interview with the member of the bishopric that, you know, either bishopric could issue a temple recommend things like that just logistical things that make life easier for children of divorced parents exactly i think it's great um we had a couple of other good interviews tyler the fever talked about his research on lgbt saints that was pretty interesting uh tyler was active in the church and since left it was and he's a researcher he's a doc he's a he's a doctor he has a PhD. Um, also, we had, of course, Soraya Wilson, who wrote romance novels. And that interview became one of my favorite ones I did, even though I was like so nervous about doing it because I had no idea if it was. That was a great episode. I really enjoyed audience. listening to her. Yeah, that was fun. interview with her. That was um, she's great. Soraya is awesome. Also, this was cool. The church made the language so- learning software for missionaries available to everybody. They just figured, let's just let everybody have this. Why not? Like, it's great software to learn how to teach the gospel in different languages. And now we'll just. Set it up for everyone. Say goodbye to your Rosetta Stone subscription. Say hello to learning gospel-centric language in 
in about a hundred. How many languages? Like dozens, dozens of good, languages. There are dozens of us. Um, of course, we had October General Conference, which was a little more planned. It was still remote. Um, and with that, we had some new temples. Uh, I don't think it was nothing as earth shattering as Shanghai, but I was shocked when they got the second temple in Sao Paulo only because Joe Peterson predicted that one. And that I feel like that came out of nowhere. So I thought that was a lot of fun. Good for him. Uh, Elder Gong was the first temple apostle to get COVID right after conference. You might remember he was distant from conference because of the risk and then Right after they said he had it, and he's been fine. But there we go. And we said here first apostle, but uh, we've really only had two, right? Him and Elder Renland. Yeah, but he is still the first. Yeah, yeah. I'm just saying it's not like okay. If the 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 first of twelve, yes. There we go. There we go. The first of two. Uh, We also had a great episode with Meryl Jensen, the esteemed composer. That was a fun one. Uh, He was a hoot to talk to. He was just great, and. Virtual Christmas concert. That was a cool way to do Christmas, I thought, this year when encouraging everyone else to submit their own stuff, group things, original songs, whatever it might be. And the church would just put it all together, assuming that, assuming they had the rights to do it. I don't know how it would be. What if you're doing copyrighted material? How, I don't know how they navigated that. Mm. Yeah, I'm Are they sure. buying mechanical licenses for everything? I don't know. Uh, we had Evan McMullen on to talk about democracy and upset everyone who thinks we talk politics too much. And uh, also, we're the, we're the worst. Are, the church started the Saints Channel Studio featuring none other than Richie Stedman of the Cultural Hall. And I've always loved the header image for this article because it looks like he's Richie, you look very you look like you have a, a snobby, amused look on your face as this person's seeing. You're like, really? What is this? Yes. That's all I think about that. And uh because of Utah's failure on COVID, they had to scale back church services temporarily. Good job, church in Utah. Ha ha ha. And our, <laughs> that was a good vindictive laugh. Very, very. Our, nice. our, and then finally, coming into December, Christmas time's been wonderful. I think, uh, of course, oh, Thanksgiving, we had the challenge by the prophet to give thanks, which was great. And then also in early December, they announced the first temples moving into phase three. And those are finally going to get there here about this week when four temples will be operating under phase three, which is super cool. And uh, that's been most of the year. I think a great segue for it will be saying that one other big thing we did is the first presidency congratulated Joe Biden on becoming president. That happened right after the electoral. Unbelievable. I, unbelievable. And while the Twim Sisters covered that at length, we're not going to talk about it. What we are going to talk about quickly is a, a, I love just good just data. And over at Zalafahad's Daughters, which is an interesting blog that I actually think publishes worthwhile content, Ziff decided to sort of quantify all of this information. So when this all happened, remember, look a couple episodes ago, Twim Sisters talked about the comments. The comments were interesting, to say the least, when the church did this, with many people not understanding this is just standard procedure. This is just an SOP, folks. There's a new president, first presidency says, congratulations, we look forward to working with you. And that's really all it is. Um but everyone took it to mean like that the that like the newsroom but hijacked by Democrats and the first presidency didn't even sign off on this and it's this it's it's the swamp Salt Lake is the swamp none of that happened this was just a boilerplate thing they did so um, Ziff decided to analyze the, the statements before the church public affairs closed the comments and rate them based on whether they're like strong Biden weak Biden neutral strong Trump pro Trump. And then also by subject area, I'm not going to go into a ton of detail here, but I think it's fascinating to see the spread 
of just what the comments were like. Like a, like forty eight percent of the comments were for Trump, whereas twenty seven percent supported Biden, and about a quarter of them were just neutral, uh, more or less. What are some of the other good ones here? Uh, I love this one based on like how much they supported the candidate, whether like what they said. So, for example, the election is over or not, right? People supported Biden were arguing the election is over. Many Trump supporters said not. Um, fraud, election fraud people were Trumpy. It's most of the things you would think. Right. But the neutral comments were interesting, ones who said very little about uh, either candidate. So they led on saying things like follow the prophet, followed by Biden supporters by far. Many Trump supporters were not saying follow the prophet, which is interesting. The same goes for church neutrality. Um Peace and unity were just neutral comments, not supporting either candidate. <laughs> Stop fighting, neutral. Uh, a leading number of Trump people talked about Gadiant and robbers and secret combinations. Of course. And uh, many Trump people also talked about God is in control, the second coming is near, freedom of religion. And my favorite at the very end, because n- neither of it had anything to do with either candidate, uh, gifs of people eating popcorn to just watch things burn. And I'm assuming that mostly will be the Michael Jackson thriller video image of yeah. eating popcorn. One would hope it's probably that. There's some other good data here. It's a fun. It's fun to read through. Strictly, no matter where you are on any election stuff, just to see an interesting breakdown of how people on the newsroom's Facebook page responded, uh, and also breakdowns by gender too, which is pretty interesting. That actually was fascinating because um, women were more angrily about Trump which usually they're not. But LDS women, I guess, are a bit of a different beast in this sense, at least online. Hmm. Interesting data points, you know? So read it, folks. Good times. Happy New Year. Good, Some good quantitative analysis. No peace on earth or goodwill toward men anymore. Christmas is over. <laughs> no, it's not. It's not over till the 6th, man. <laughs> 12 days of Christmas are in full swing. Today, you will receive four calling birds. So as long as we're talking about uh, controversial political stuff, the New York Post, and I'd like to just make a comment here. I I guess if we're reviewing content from the New York Post, we're just taking content from anyone now? Yes. That's usually the standard we work to here. Yeah. Okay. So the New York Post, uh, I guess in response to, uh, you know, the controversy that was caused a few days ago by President Trump announcing several... um, pardons, um, some of which were, you know, ones you would expect, and several of which were um, maybe, I mean, I guess shocking isn't the word we use anymore when we refer to this presidency, but just interesting and maybe a little eyebrow-raising, controversial, however you want to say it. Uh, The New York Post decided to run a top 10 list of the top 10 controversial pardons in U.S. history from presidents. And number 10, top of the list, Last of, you know, last of the controversial to them, but still top of the list. Our first mention, 1858, James Buchanan pardons the Mormons. And this is super interesting. I actually didn't know about this. Uh, Jeff assumes I know all things about U.S. history and Mormons. You are my index. So, yeah. It's all right. But uh, so, but this was like, I guess um, in 1858, the Buchanan just decided to issue a proclamation that in general pardoned all Mormons especially those who were living in the territory of Utah, because, uh, you know, there had been this ongoing, quote unquote, Mormon war where, you know, the U.S. had sent the army, uh, people down in southern Utah, unfortunately, perpetrated a massacre against the 
the people at Mount, you know, in the Mountain Meadows yeah. massacre. We don't need to tell you about that. Anyway, so there was all this sort of like outrage uh, in the national media and among, uh, sort of in general, among people of the nation, I guess, against the Mormons and wanting us to be prosecuted or jailed or whatever. And Buchanan just issued a blanket pardon for all Mormons for being Mormon <laughs> so in case they were considered seditious or whatever. Um, so that's super interesting. Uh, there's a whole lot of other, it's a good list. I hate to send people to the New York post because it's, it's, it's kind of, it's, I'm going to say it, it's kind of a rag, but um, there are some, yeah, it's a good list. And it, it brought back some loving memories of the nineties or I guess in the zeros when Clinton himself came in at number one pardoning. I, I won't spoil it. Go look it up. Who did Clinton po- spoil? Uh, I know, I know, but read read all about it because uh, you may have forgotten and it bears remembering that corrupt and questionable pardoning practices are not new in the U.S. presidency. I would just love to be here at the time for the for the context, because for us seeing James Buchanan pardoning more, the Mormons, it just seems ridiculous, right? But we have to imagine in 1858, this is actually a big deal nationally. Oh, totally. We were seeing we were seeing as these crazy renegades, and he's like, just let it go. I mean, because right underneath that. Andrew Johnson pardoned the Confederate soldiers, for example, something we probably don't think as much about today either, even with the Civil War. But at the time, like, nope, you're all pardoned. Well, all- you need to remember that when, you know, so uh, Abraham Lincoln is is the first Republican president. He gets elected yes. in the election of 1860, which is just two years later. And the Republican Party had been founded just scant years before that. And one of the reasons that the platform, one of the big platforms that the Republican Party was founded on was to to counter the twin relics of barbarism, which were one slavery and two polygamy. Yes. The Republican party was founded in part to counter the Mormons because of our polygamous practices. And so this was a large enough movement that it founded a big political party that exists to this day, albeit in a different form, I would argue. Uh, But then it also gave us the eminent and interesting and influential president Abraham Lincoln. So yeah, the Mormons were a big, big issue that raised a lot of eyebrows and got a lot of people's ire up. So yeah, it's not terribly surprising, I guess, that Buchanan felt he had to issue a blanket pardon for an entire religion. And I don't think a, a lot of members of the church know that the original Republican Party was not very friendly to the Latter-day Saints. We had Which again is Whigs an understatement and, because it was yeah. direct, it was organized directly in opposition yeah. to a practice and teaching of the church. So, And if you want to hear more about that, by the way, our interview with uh, Miles Harvey, the James Strang book, talks a lot about that period of American history. Very interesting. Very interesting stuff. Good times all around. Here's a bizarre tale coming out of Tucson.com. An appellate judge says a court ruling on whether Mormons are Christians was inappropriate. So a little bit of background here. Oh, this is the Court of Appeals is warning Arizona judges to stay away from an issue like this, basically from trying to beat theologians, more or less. So in a unanimous ruling, the appellate judges struck down a ruling by the Maricopa County Superior Court judge. Um, it involves a dispute, between. there was a couple that was married in 1999, had two kids, divorced in 2017. Uh, both parents represented themselves. So as part of the procedure, they filled out a court-provided parenting plan. That among other things, it says stipulated each parent may take the children to any church or of worship while he or she is in custody. And it says that both parents agree that children may be, may be instructed in the Christian faith. 
So they're like, you can go to any church you want, presumably so long as it's Christian. About a year later, the father joined the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and the children occasionally joined him at the meetings. After learning this, the mother sought legal intervention, claiming the father was violating the parenting plan because his church is not Christian. So, um, so, the, so the main issue here, though, is that the Maricopa County judge, I believe, like sided with the mother at first. <laughs> That Mormon, the, the ruling said Mormonism does not fall within the confines of the Christian faith. And the appellate court said, yeah, you can't really rule that. And so we're overturning. Yeah. This. And there's a couple of interesting things to me. First of all. Great job, that- Arizona. You're right there with Utah. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. No, we, there's so many things we could say about that. That's a fascinating story from a legal, from just a jurisprudence standpoint, though, I think. it's Well, and also what's interesting, first of all, like if if they had specified Protestant Christianity, I could understand that because, you know, we are definitely not Protestants. But yes, I mean, you know, would the mother have raised a similar objection if he had taken her, the children to a Catholic church or, you know, like they're Christians, but they're very different from Protestant Christianity. I mean, I don't know. The other thing that I think is interesting is that Maricopa County, where this judge was ruling from, is the county which contains Mesa, Arizona and the surrounding environs, which has a very high Latter-day Saint population. Yeah. And so I want, it makes you wonder if this judge has been colored by his experience with his neighbors or just the, the culture of the surrounding community. And if that gave him a, a bias against, you know, uh, Mormonism or, you know, whether or not we should be considered Christians, you would just think, you know, in Maricopa County of all places that there would be kind of more informed ideas about the church and what we believe in who we are. And for him to, rule that we weren't Christian. I'm like, oh, did you have a bad experience with a Mormon neighbor or something like that? I don't know. Again, I'm speculating here. This is the episode where I speculate a lot. Um, <laughs> well, I'm, so looking up, I'm looking up Judge Michael Mandel here, if we can find anything. Nothing too crazy here. Uh, he's a pretty good judge. He's a law clerk, a sole practitioner of counsel. He got his JD from ASU College of Law, got his Bachelor of Political Science from ASU. So see, not the fact that he went to ASU and everything, that I means you feel like he's from this area. So he has to know Mormons, right? But he was appointed by Governor Ducey to the Maricopa County Supreme Court. He was a commissioner for the Maricopa he was a commissioner for the court before that. Mm-hmm. Interesting stuff. I'm trying to I'm not seeing anything though. There's nothing published about him hating Mormons, unfortunately. But hey, well, you know, I serve. We can't, I have tests. we can't have litmus tests when we appoint judges, Jared. Certainly not. So, I served my mission in Maricopa County. I was a, that's where Phoenix is. I was in the Phoenix mission. And I remember, I mean, there were some interesting attitudes. I remember once uh, my companion and I were knocking doors and we ran into this guy and he was, he smelled so bad. And uh, <laughs> he answered the door without a shirt on. And every time he, he would like lift up his arm to lean against the door frame, we would get this waft of terrible air. And then he'd put his arm back down and then we there was relief and then he'd lift it up again. It was so bad. Anyway, this guy, who was super interesting. He kept on talking about how he loved the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Those Latter-day Saint guys, they would drop anything to do, they, they were doing to help you. But, you know, unlike those Mormons, those Mormons, you know, you couldn't trust them. And they, you know, you, you couldn't turn your back on a Mormon for fear of them turning on you. He had, you know, so I, I saw, I ran into all sorts of interesting takes on uh, our religion and un- informed and otherwise. So who knows? Who knows what this judge, what his experience People in was, Spain what his just thought we were, were Jehovah's Witnesses. So yeah. that's all we could do. Right. So anyway, no, I'm glad that was overturned. No, wait, like, like, that, like, the, like the appellate judge ruled 
it it doesn't matter if we're considered Christian or not. It's inappropriate for a judge to make that kind of ruling. And I, I think that's the right call. I think they should recall him. I believe there should be a recall. Get to work, people. That's right. Come on. Right now. I'm going to do a couple quick mentions. Uh, they re- announced the location for the Linden, Utah Temple. If you might remember in the last conference, they announced a temple in Linden, of all places. If you don't know where Linden is, it's because it's it's a speck of a city compared to the ones surrounding it, like Pleasant Grove and Orem and, and Provo. But, uh, you know, it's very thin and narrow. There's only like 10,000 people in Linden. Uh, if you've ever been to the Utah area and driven on State Street, basically, if you're driving through Orem, going up, when you hit the Neaters, you're in Linden, but by the time you hit the Walmart, you're already in Pleasant Grove. Very, 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 very small. But it gets a temple, because why not? Because we we have nice things for Utah. And like that article said a few weeks ago, Utah is so supremely righteous that that's why they have all these temples. So anyway, they're building the temple. It's barely in Linden, by the way. It looks like it's a block away from the city line with Orem. So Orem came this close to having two temples within its city limits and they could have called it within the course of a year announced. I know. Right. So it'll be farther up kind of on the bench closer to Provo Canyon up there. Um, That's all we know, but they did say it's going to be an 80,000 square foot temple. So once again, none of these new temples in Utah have been, I think, I don't think any of them have been less than 80,000 square feet. If they have, they've been like 76. Well, it makes sense. My sister lives in American Forks. Her temple district is the Timpanogos temple. And she, Um, has just been really grateful for a lot of these very close by temple announcements because, you know, they'll go and this is obviously before the pandemic, but she and her husband would go to do an endowment session and end up having to wait over an hour. I mean, to even just get into the dressing room because the temple is so overflowing with people who want to do temple work, which is good. But when you have such demand and you don't have the capacity, then that's bad. And so, uh, it, it makes sense that they're building these large capacity temples in Utah County, in Salt Lake County, west in the West Valley, because there's just a lot of people who want to serve. And but you shouldn't, you know, those people shouldn't be punished with having to just wait around in, in their uncomfortable <laughs> shoes because they wanted to serve their ancestors. So yeah, yeah, I, mean, I know you're you're very nice, very very thoughtful here. And <laughs> I try. The other one I'll put in right here uh, at the Washington D.C. Temple. Our beautiful temple out here, which gets mentioned a lot on this show, probably because of, well, you know, here's where I live. Uh, The famed Festival of Lights has been going on there for the Christmas season. They have lights all over the visitor center. The grounds of the DC temple are extensive and beautiful and lights are everywhere. Uh, Normally in the visitor center, they have a bunch of displays, a whole thing of creches from around the world. A lot of beautiful things. And there's a very large auditorium at the DC Temple. I can't think of a temple that has as big of a theater in a visitor center. No, it's cool. And they always did like Huge. little Christmas concerts and things like that. Yeah. Every night there's per- Christmas performances from around the – I mean, I think it was last year when the DC the DC uh, Gay Men's Chorus performed there. And a bunch of people got all upset about this. What are they doing? It's like, who cares? Just love them. They're talented. Great. Right. No, I mean, most so, people didn't get upset. There's just a contingent of um, LDS yeah. people got upset about that. Um, but those – Parts of it aren't happening this year for COVID reasons. So instead, the Festival of Lights is just a drive-through. And as best as I can tell, I think it's just a swing through the parking lot of the visitor center, see the little nativity scene set up and all the beautiful lights, and then you're on your way. And that's it. Did they not decorate the rest of the trees around the parking lot? I, I, I imagine it more like a we, whole temple we parking thought, lot. We drive-through. thought about going, but decided the total time round trip wouldn't be worth it for the lights. So we didn't do it. Well, understandable, especially considering what this uh, article was talking about. Yeah, and so in the article, the point is uh, it caused major traffic backup in the area. The temple's in a largely residential area. I mean, there are houses. It's entirely residential. Yeah, it's okay, just like, yes. it's a nice neighborhood. 
with houses. It might be right next to the Beltway, but it's entirely residential, a great neighborhood. Uh, and because it's drive-through only, instead of people just showing up and going inside and this and that, huge backup of cars as people snake their way through the temple, and it caused a lot of problems for yeah, the so local. Imagine you live in the house right across the street from the temple, and you're just trying to get home and have dinner, and there's all and you're these stuck cars waiting in a line that are cars blocking your house for like a couple of miles out. Yeah. And to say nothing of what if you have to pack up the family and go somewhere as well while this is going on. Lots of issues. So um, the I don't know if anything's happened since this was issue was announced, but the the church for its part, the visitor center rep said like, hey, we're happy to play ball. Like we want to figure out a better solution so nobody gets upset. Well, did so they say that also, they also like, you know, looked into hire, hiring more off-duty cops and things like that yeah, to help with yeah. traffic. So they're, they're not trying to pull some kind of God card and say, this is how the Lord wants it to be people, which I've seen happen in my day. Uh, no, this is, they're just, they're working with the community to make it, make it as good as they can. That's great. Good job. So while we're talking about temples, let's keep on, let's keep on this temple theme. So in Tooele, we, we mentioned that the church had announced the, the location of the Tooele temple. There is a very popular uh, restaurant called Verg's. Am I saying that right? Verg's? Yeah, I am the expert on all things Tooele Valley. Well, it's V-I-R-G-E-apostrophe S. And so like to me, in my mind, that says that's short for Virgil. And so I'm like, is it Verges or is it Verg's? I don't know. It's Virgin. Uh, Yes, at the Virgin Restaurant in Tooele. Uh, no, what's happening is the when, where the church announced that they were building. Uh, it Vergs is on the lot that they've that they're purchasing and planning to develop. Uh, what's interesting? There's a few interesting things about this story. One, um, where Vergs is, uh, part originally the. We've covered this before in This Week in Mormons, but there was originally also going to be like sort of this housing development built close to next to the temple. And there was a big controversy about that. And so they've kind of either postponed, if not completely canceled the plans for that. canceled it. Canceled the plans. Okay. Thank you for clarifying. See, you know some things that I don't know. Um, And then, so Vergs is on that, in in that area. But in spite of them canceling that development plan, they're still... Um, evicting vergs from their, you know, they, they gave them until the end of the month, this month to vacate the premises. So that's one of the interesting things. The other interesting thing. Um, yeah. It's just, well, what I just said is that it's a very short notice. Like the, the, in the article, they had an interview with the owner of vergs and they said that, you know, they were more than willing to find a new place and move, you know, set up shop in a different area, but they assumed they had a couple months to do it and they got a very, yeah quick turnaround notice. And so it's caused them to have to shut down operations, which is uh, taking a big hit. They have other locations uh, in Utah, but this location is their big moneymaker, which is interesting because it's in Tooele of all places. Um, but I guess it's just a very popular establishment. There. Well, they and do have other locations like in the main Wasatch front. Exactly. Oh. But those other uh, restaurants are mainly supported by the location in Tooele, which is super interesting. That That's called redistribution. You can't do that. It doesn't work. Right. But, um, so anyway, so now they're, they're probably going to be, they have to lay off some people and take a big cut. They didn't have to lay off anyone during the whole COVID thing, which is pretty remarkable for a small time restaurant. Um, but now they're going to probably have to lay off some people. They're setting up shop in another location, which is forcing them to displace a popular Mexican restaurant. So that's causing some controversy. It's just kind of a mess. And it's just been interesting because 
the people who own it, I, it doesn't say that they're members, but the way that the quotes come across from the article, it sounds like, you know, he'll say things like, well, I don't want to criticize the church. It sounds like they're members. Yeah. And, and so, but they're kind of, they're frustrated. And one of the things that was most interesting to me from the article, hang on, I want to find the quote so I get it right. Um, okay. It says the situation had become a, a hot button topic on social media and within the community residents, the majority of whom are Latter-day Saints and are excited about the planned temple have scolded law. Law is the owner of the restaurant have scolded law for complaining about the eviction notice and then pursuing a different property that is displacing another business. So it's like, this guy can't win. He's like, you know, trying to do his best and the people love the restaurant, but now that he's being scolded for displacing this other business, and then they're scolding him for complaining about the eviction notice as as if to say the church in all of its, you know, whether it's the ecclesiastical church, the theocratic church, the, the business arm of the church, whatever, is beyond reproach. How dare you complain that you've been evicted from your main source of income? <laughs> like, I don't know. I just find people oddly entertaining. That's like, you can't complain about losing your business. The church did it. You should be happy. I don't know. It's like, sure I can. When they're scouting on temple sites, they have different options. I mean, it's... I. I or, you know, they could have given me two more months or whatever, you know. I'm clearly not privy to the the thought and prayer that goes into where to build a temple. I'm not, obviously. And I don't just mean like we're going to build a temple in Tuella, like the specific lot of land where they decide to do it. But I do know that when they're looking at these things, they scout out many possibilities. And it's like anything else. You study it out. You look at the options and you pray about what makes the most sense. I mean, sure. even my, sure my done, they were doing the best that they could with the information they had with the plans for going, moving forward with the temple, which is the house of the true. Lord, but so that the doesn't mean I it doesn't that. affect other people. And it know? also doesn't mean that you potentially couldn't have built it somewhere else. I mean, I think a lot of the thought that goes behind a temple, you're talking about like environmental impact studies and traffic flow patterns, like what may, and, and then proximity to the temple district it will be serving. That makes sense of the decisions you're making on top of just like asking God, if that works for him more or less, right. and if it's fine. So that well, that is to say, someone I think can complain about losing their business because of the temple, because it's, I don't think, I don't think, think that the Lord just revealed to President Nelson, put Vergs out of business. This is exactly where it has to go. I imagine some human elements were uh, at play there, which is fine. Well, look who's should- speculating now. That's what I do. That's what, That's what do. I do. I've got some Bitcoin for you if you would like it. <laughs> nice. Uh, let's continue talking about temples. Uh, I didn't intend to talk about that Tula story as much as I did. I guess it, it struck a chord with me some, for some reason. Here's another one that really struck a chord with me uh, about the Provo Temple, which used to be the Provo Tabernacle. This was, was this in the Herald? Let me check real quick. Yeah, Daily Herald. Yes. So in the Daily Herald, they ran a nice little piece called Memories Still Tender After Decades Since Provo Tabernacle Burned. And so let me tell you, this this is an article that struck a chord with me. I'm not from Provo, but I did attend BYU. as I lived in Provo for about five years. And the stake that I was in for the majority of the time that I was in Provo, we had all of our state conferences and some other meetings in the Provo Tabernacle. I really loved that building. It's a beautiful building downtown. It has a lot of history. It's, it, had a be- it has a beautiful exterior. It had a beautiful interior as well. Uh, but even when I was there, I mean, it was very old. If you see pictures of the Provo, the, the Provo City Center Temple, which was what it's now called, if you look at pictures, it has this big 
gorgeous spire just sticking right up from the middle center of the roof. And when I would attend meetings in the Provo Tabernacle, they had removed that spire because the, the roof was so old it couldn't support the weight of yeah. the spire anymore. Anyway, I loved that building. I thought it was a wonderful place. I had a, a lot of good memories and some spiritual experiences there. And so when I remember 10 years ago when the story came out that there had been a fire, that, and I, thankfully an accidental fire, it wasn't arson or anything. Still, I, I, I got very emotional. I was really sad because at, at, when they estimated what it would cost to repair and or restore the tabernacle, it was in the, mil, it was in the tens of millions. And the church basically said, we're not going to restore this or you know repair the damage from the fire and it made me really sad i thought this is a great loss for provo and for for the church and then within a year they announced that they were going to turn it into the provo city center temple and it it really just like turned the whole thing around and to me it was kind of a symbol of just like again like one of the the appeals of christianity in general to me and of the church is this idea of restoration that regardless of the damage we do to our own lives or to other people's lives, that Christ promises restoration and restitution and reparation that he can fix and turn around anything. And, and the story of the Provo Tabernacle slash Provo City Center Temple, to me, is an emblem of that. And it shows that we can take this beautiful old thing that was badly burned and nearly destroyed and turn it even to something even better than it was before. So I, I love that story. And I was happy that the the Herald ran, ran it. It was uh, uplifting to me and it was a good reminder at the end of the year during this christmas season you know that what we're what we should be reminded of of christ and his uh healing power so anyway i really liked that and i'm very grateful for the provo city center temple i haven't been inside it i haven't had an opportunity to serve in that temple but i have gone and seen it since it was restored and they've just really just polished it up and made it a beautiful beautiful place so i was there gosh I mean, I've been down to Provo, but I remember, I think it was 2013 when this construction was, you know, moving along in earnest. And we were there, I think. So we swung by South Provo to check it out when it was the construction site. And that was right at the time when they'd excavated around the old temple shell. Because I don't believe the tabernacle, I don't think, had a basement. Or if it did, it was a different type of basement. Because a lot of these old tabernacles, you know, like the tabernacle in Salt Lake, the basement has like a baptismal font in it. There's a basement there. I'm not sure what they did. But in this case, they had to basically prop up the entire shell yeah. with and hold the whole thing up with, with struts and then build a foundation underneath that actually matched it in shape because there is a, you can get into the temple from the basement because there's an underground parking lot they put right. in. So it matches it in shape and structure that I just, just watching that just strictly from an engineering standpoint, I marvel at the things we can do that we are able to hold up this entire shell of a building, build a foundation under it, and then work from there and fill it in. I thought that was just so cool. And I got to see this giant pit when they were doing that. That is really cool. I wish I had seen that. In the the article, they do talk about how really the building itself is not, it doesn't have a huge footprint as far as just width and length or even height. And so they talk about in the article how, much of the temple is underground for that purpose. And like, and like you said, we usually put, you know, baptismal fonts underground, like in the basement of the temple, but they've really dug down uh, that, that baptismal font is really deep. And they also mentioned just because again, of the small footprint of the building, uh, the, the baptismal font font is oval instead of round, which is not normal. So you, instead of having those oxen bearing up the font in a nice tight circle, they're standing in an ovoid formation. That's awesome. Um, yeah. So yeah. So but the, so part of that purpose of propping it up on those on those on those that heavy duty scaffolding was not only to pour a better foundation for it, but to dig down so that they could make room 
for all of the things they need. I am looking at photos right now, and it looks like it's almost two stories of scaffolding underneath it. Yeah. It's amazing, too, that we restored it because when you look at these pictures, I don't want to go off on too much of a digression here, but with the shell of the temple, you know, all the steeples were gone, the cupolas, everything was gone. It was just that brick shell. And that's like all that remained. And it's kind of amazing all the effort we went to to keep that and build a temple out of it because at that point, there's almost so so little left of what it was. Right. You could easily see the argument of like, guys, just knock it over and build something new. It might be less of a hassle, but we went to great effort to... Yeah, there's sort of a, sh- a ship of Theseus question here, right? Like if you've replaced like 99% of the tabernacle, is it still the original building? Yeah, because when you see those pictures, it's literally, you see it's just... It was it was just a shell. It, it, a it, shell. The fire it. gutted it because it was very old and just, you know, very weak anyway. The the wood That wood was just primed for, for burning. But they were yeah, this was this this was our Notre Dame, you know. Oh, this was worse than the damage to Notre Dame by far. No, significantly worse. Yeah. I mean, the whole building got torched completely. But I'd say in terms of making the world gasp in horror, this was not like Notre Dame. But yeah. it was big no, for not, but it was big for our <laughs> not by a long shot. If you're interested, by the way, folks, since you since I brought it up. On PBS, if you ever use the PBS app on your smart TV streaming device, very good. A lot of interesting programming you can get access to. They have a Nova special on everything they're doing to fix Notre Dame Cathedral, which, you know, caught fire a year and a half or so ago. Uh, That's all very interesting in terms of engineering and restoration of buildings because they can't even go inside it safely. They've built like an entire superstructure around it so that people can rappel down into the building and put no weight on any of the walls or anything like that. Interesting. And there's, they're basically hanging their working so they don't touch anything inside. Fascinating stuff, but I won't bore you with it too much more. Yeah, this uh, isn't right this now. weekend Catholics. Come on, Jeff. No, it is most definitely not. Uh, also, Dixie State, this is sort of Latter-day Saint adjacent, I guess, but Dixie State University is going to remove the Dixie from the university's name. Uh, for many, Dixie uh, has a negative connotation invoking sort of the racist South. It was Southern Utah is called Dixie, I believe, because they grew, grew cotton there back when. So they kind of dubbed it Dixie and that stuck. And that's been fine. But nowadays it is uh, a little bit too of much of a hot button issue. They have not announced what they will be renaming it, but uh, you know that they're going to change it. I think they should just call it St. George State University. Right. Because I was like, what would they change it to? Because there's already a Southern Utah University. So that's taken. Uh, yeah, it's got to, it, I'm, I'm assuming like you, it'll be like St. George State or something like that. I thought Washington. it was interesting. Because, it could like be the said, Washington I mean, County. they called it Dixie. Exactly why you said it was a place where the church, you know, back in the early colonization of the West by our, by our forebears in the church, you know, they, they would send people on missions to say, you're going to go to Eastern Idaho and you're going to farm potatoes, you know, and you're going to go here and you're going to farm this. And, and they said, you're going to go down to uh, St. George area, whatever it was called back then and say, and they, and you're going to grow cotton. And so, yeah, it became a moniker because it's just like cotton's grown in the South and way down South in Dixie. Um, anyway, it's just funny because there was a quote in the article by uh, one of the, I can't remember who it was, but she was saying locally, we understand what the name means. And it's easy to say, if we could just explain it to everyone, that'd be great. But we don't have that opportunity. But I don't feel like that helps anything. It's like, yeah, we called it Dixie because we were growing cotton here and we wanted to name it after the place where slaves picked cotton in the United States. So, I mean, (laughs) no matter how you explain it, there's a slavery connection. So maybe uh, they could rename the university Red Cliffs 
Utah. Oh, there you go. Wait, but that's in Washington County. Is that where St. George is? Is that in Washington County? Yeah, it's all Washington uh, County. That's why the Washington County Temple was a funny name because it's like, well, there's already one in Washington County. That's the St. George Temple. Right. So, but they renamed it the Red Cliffs. So yeah, so Red I think Cliffs College this, or Red Cliffs let's University. Let's call this Red Cliffs University. University. That sounds like a for-profit university to me. That just seems like something. That's true. With online degrees. Shutter. Um... I think the only, let's see, the two big things we have left, handbook changes. Anything you want to bring up there, Jared? Uh, there's some really interesting stuff, You, but a lot of our listeners are probably already aware of this. Hang on, let me just make sure I don't miss They're it. They're not against cremation anymore. Now it's like a personal choice. So the big things that people are talking about, at least that uh, Ms. Stack, Sister Stack, Sister Fletcher Stack, I don't know how we're supposed to, Peggy Fletcher Stack, let's just call her by her full name. Um, also known as, quote, the worst. What? Call her the worst. Whatever. Come on, Jeff. Give it up. You know you like her. I'm just jealous of her Pulitzer. Yes, you are. You're also jealous of McKay Coppins, but we'll get to that. Um, we so anyway. So the Madison. big things that she uh, pointed out that were interesting changes. First of all, uh, it there are now there's specific language in the general ham, handbook against prejudice. Um, and so, you know, we, we got a lot of that in our latest conference talks about, you know, making sure we're not judging people on their race or any color of their skin, other attributes. Uh, I would probably assume that part of that also includes, you know, not being prejudiced against people for being LGBTQ plus. Like, I, I think it, mm-hmm. it, it's not, it doesn't actually get too specific, but just to saying like, we need to be careful not to be prejudiced because as God's people who are commanded to love people, everyone, that's not okay. The other big thing that she po- points out is uh, that the church is instructing us via the handbook to seek information from reliable sources. And I want to read the quote that she pulls out here because this is super interesting. Uh, it says, okay, the section on misinformation warns members that about sources that, quote, are unreliable and do not edify, unquote, or even, quote, Seek to promote anger, contention, fear, or baseless conspiracy theories, end quote. Uh, And then it says it advises members to stick with, quote, only credible, reliable, and factual sources of information and avoid those that are speculative or founded on rumor. Uh, And so it's interesting. A lot of people have been cheering that because it's like... I mean, we've talked about this, I think, a little bit on the podcast before. It's interesting how susceptible some people, not just in general today, but within our ranks, seem to be very credulous towards conspiratorial thinking and, you know, kind of jump on that bandwagon. It's a little disheartening, I think. I'm editorializing here. But um, the others, but other people have pointed out that this language is very encouraging and positive and good. But it's also vague enough. I mean, they're not getting to the point where they're just like naming news sources. Like, you know, it doesn't say like avoid info wars or anything like that, right? Newsmax. Right. Or, oh man, I wasn't going to get that political. Where you just went Occupy there. Occupy Democrats. <laughs> so, Jacobin. Yeah. So, it's, so it's, yeah, they're not naming specific sources. So, the way it's worded, a person could easily say, well, this is a warning against the lamestream media. And I, that's why I feel comfortable continuing to listen to Alex Jones because he's the one telling the truth, you know? So I don't know. It's, it, I hope that people will take this in the way it's intended, but I think some people will just use it to, as a means of confirmation bias to just continue getting their sources from conspiracy theory sites. They need to name names. That's yep. what I think. I did. I named Alex Jones. I, I'm not ashamed of it. 
I, I, I went out and I took a stand, a very controversial stand that Alex Jones is not a reliable source of news. Anyway, so there were some other things in There's there. There's some other things in here. Uh, one that I think is interesting is it says that temple ordinances are, um, as you, the handbook used to say, temple ordinances are not performed for stillborn children. Now it says they are not necessary for children who die before birth. Sort of a quick change in language. Yeah. Um, but it does. The revised section also adds that parents may record information about stillborn and miscarried children in family search, for example. So that's, that's and that's new. that's new and that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it also it eliminates the statement from the previous handbook that says it is a fact that the life the child has a life before birth. However, there is no direct revelation on when the spirit enters the body. That is no longer there in the handbook, which is which interesting like- in the in the abortion debate in particular. Of course, that uh, that's no longer there. Uh, there's language uh, encouraging seeking counseling if you feel like you need it. You know, they're trying to remove the stigma against counseling. You know, it's a, it specifically says that seeking counseling is not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of humility and strength. I thought that's nice, positive language as well. It also opposes, uh, it says, any therapy, including conversion or reparative therapy for sexual orientation or gender identity that subjects a person to abusive practices. So that's also, that's a huge leap. Uh, and I don't think the church has ever officially sanctioned um, con- gender, you know, like, you know, uh, what's the word? Conversion therapy? Con- yeah, conversion therapy for people who are LGBTQ plus or reparative therapy. They did did that, we not they, officially? I mean, I, it was, I don't know it was if that was ever like thing, officially sanctioned, but, but, oh. but I definitely know of stories where bishops have pointed people towards that sort of thing. Right, right. Uh, but, um, but, the, but the fact that they are now vocally and adamantly emphatically denying you know that you know saying we should not do this that is um that's a huge step and and i and i like that it says uh the church says its therapists do not practice it so we're saying don't do this we're saying we don't do it uh we're saying it's damaging it's devastating for people who are uh subjected to that sort of again in quotes therapy because it's it's not anything that's helpful to anyone so I'm, i was glad to see that um, it also expands on abuse and the definitions and how to respond to it in other ways it stresses very clearly that uh ecclesiastical leaders are not only to counsel or people should not only counsel with the bishop but also to report it to civil authorities which is also where i think we're we're very slowly getting away from this notion of the bishop is the man to fix everything and right. realizing that the bishop is not a, th- a trained therapist, like you were just saying, we're talking about therapy, and the bishop is also not a lawyer or a police officer, and we need to take the correct civil action uh, as necessary. And reminding that that leaders are in a place to quote provide spiritual counseling and support uh, unquote to victims to help them in that sense. That's that is why they exist to get us to get them through that. And, right, uh, and really the biggest issue generally in a situation like that is that. There, like you said, they, they use the word victims, and like there are victims who need protection, and you know a bishop can't do that. Law enforcement can do that. There are organs of the state set up to do those sorts of things. There were also just a couple of really quick other f- mentions. They uh, it says that medical care should work together with faith and a priesthood blessing. You know, they're, they're basically encouraging people not you know that they should go ahead and use a doctor. You know, priesthood blessings are great, but so are doctors. There's a reason they exist. And mm-hmm. warned against practices like energy healing or seeking miraculous or supernatural healing from an individual or a group that claims to have special methods. And again, uh, unfortunately, that's, that's a veiled criticism of many industries. Uh, yes. And unfortunately, like with the conspiracy theory thing, we have seen 
an unfortunate tendency towards credulism among many of our members um, in certain areas of the church. And so it's, it's, you know, they felt like they needed to warn against things like that. And then there was a, the last thing that she mentioned in the article uh, was something about dressing and appearance. It's, it encourages members to show respect for their bodies. It also encourages Latter-day Saints to wear their best available Sunday clothing to show respect for the sacrament ordinance and to the temple. But it also says that the handbook cautions against judging others for their dress and appearance, which again, I, it seems like we shouldn't have to say that. It kind of seems like the Book of Mormon teaches us that lesson over and over and over again, as well as the Old Testament, as well as the New Testament, uh, that we're you know pit- pitting ourselves against each other based on our dress and appearance is really a quick road to sinful pride. Um, yeah. But anyway, so but I'm I'm, I'm happy it's in there because maybe some people need to be reminded of that. Maybe including me. You know, I hate to point fingers um, because all of us need need a little humility now and then. But yeah, seriously. If somebody shows up without a tie, whether they're a missionary or not, why don't we just say, hey, cool, you're here. I'm glad you're here. Who cares if you're wearing Or we could wonder what's going on in their life that they aren't wearing a tie and like what uh, are they going to be a drain on ward resources? These are the questions we should be asking, Jared. <laughs> These are the questions, the hard-hitting questions. Absolutely. All right, let's move on. We spent too much uh, time on this. We do our last thing here. We're running long, but – Given the, our production schedule, the fact that we had our Christmas episode last week, which if you haven't listened to it, great set of stories there. Uh, we haven't, I don't believe on this show, discussed McKay Coppin's big piece in The Atlantic, right? Well, we haven't. And I haven't. I, heard, haven't. No, I don't think it's been discussed by anyone. It was published on December 16th, so new. No, we have not. That was only 12 days ago. And the sisters were last in the seat before that. Uh I don't think we have a ton of time to devote to it, but the the long and short of it, I would say, McKay Coppins, of course, McKay Coppins, the god, the Adonis that he is, um, wrote a wonderful piece, really just talking about his own experience as a Latter-day Saint, but also he called this the most American religion and why the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is the most American religion. And I love his subheading, that perpetual outsiders, Mormons spent 200 years assimilating to a certain national ideal only to find their country in an identity crisis. What will the third century for the faith look like? And he leads off with the fact that he got an exclusive with President Nelson. Much to the to the green with envy writers of the Deseret News, who I thought were sort of like oversharing about this entire piece, like in the way it seemed like they were trying to get some in on some of the action and some of the traffic from it. It's the only way I can describe it. But uh, he sat down with President Nelson and, and other church leaders as well, many months ago, of course, and talked about, I mean, I, what I love is how much he peppered his own experiences growing up and that his editors encouraged him to do that. He didn't just write a factual thing. And in many ways, this is like a nice rundown of church history and why we mm-hmm. believe what we believe and who we are. But woven throughout that is what it was like for him growing up in suburban Boston. Yeah, it's and a very reflective piece, which I think it, works really well. It's like, it could have been really schlocky far. or you know, felt a little too personal, but I feel like he balanced it really well. And it made it, especially for a fellow member of the church, I felt like I could relate to it a lot. I, I really liked everything that he inserted from his own life into the, the story. Yeah, I thought it made a lot of sense. It was it was almost and it's way more personal than anything I've ever seen him write. I mean, he's it's he's never been shy about the fact that he's a member of the church, especially when he covered the Romney campaign and when he's covered some things as it pertains to church members and the Trump campaign or what have you. Um, but this piece was just th- this is one of these ones we're going to look back on as being one of the more consequential long-form publications about the church that's come up in many, many years. And there's good, I did not expect when I saw it drop in my inbox that it was going to be picked up on as much as it was. I mean, 
No, it really it it made the rounds about, on social media very quickly after it. It made a lot of rounds, but I mean, even from official church outlets. Because at first, yes, I saw Deseret News people saying, like, McKin- the Atlantic wrote about the the church. Here's what they got right. And, like, everyone else at Deseret News clearly sad that they're not the ones getting this exclusive and trying to get some backlinks from all of it. But even on top of that, the next thing I know, the church news says, like, President Nelson was interviewed by the Atlantic. Like I didn't think it was going to hit that level of the church also jumping on and saying this this article happened. You should all be reading it and uh, see what's going on. So that was just that was just interesting to me completely. I thought this would just sort of fly under the radar outside of our immediate you know Latter Day Saint circles. But no, this is a, a much and that is interesting. Thing. Like you said, that the church even from the from the from the newsroom or from the church news um, was promoting this because I mean it is it's still a it's a it's an act of journalism it's not an act of devotional writing right and and he, like i said he is very reflective and inserts himself in there and he's very honest and so not i mean he doesn't necessarily use the word doubt but you could see him talking about certain things that he's had to struggle with or overcome um regarding like his own testimony or his relationship with the church or how he presents himself as a member of the church and so it's not like this like feel good you know, general conference story sort of thing. It's, I mean, it, it has that element, but it also has, you know, just again, his, like he's being really honest and and bare and raw with us in some places. And so I love that the church is like, you know, cause it feels almost more like a familiar essay than a news yeah. story. Right. And so yeah. I, again, I just like that the church is like, Hey, let's promote this. This is about us. This is an honest account of, an, you know, this reporter's encounter with our, you know, the, the general authorities that he interviewed as well as just his, you know, the, his perception of the journey of the church over the last two centuries. And I don't know, I like that they, you know, were cool with it and they want everyone to read it. Well, and they note in the church news article about it, I guess I hadn't realized this, not since president Hinckley sat down with uh, Mike Wallace on 60 minutes in 1996 has a president of the church sat for an interview with such a high profile national journalist. Interesting. So all the sit downs otherwise have been pretty much, I think more at the Utah publication level mm-hmm. um, or others. So that that's, and I remember the 60 minutes interview very vividly. I did right? too. That was a huge deal when that was happening. We were all so psyched. I think that, that happened while I was on my mission and they showed it at a zone conference. In 96, you were on your mission? Oh, wait, no, no, no. I'm thinking of Larry. No, he sat down because he did a, what's his name? The, I, I totally blinked. Uh, the CNN interviewer he used Larry to be a radio King. interviewer and then he. Larry King. Larry King. And he mar- and he, he sat down to Larry King, Larry King after the the Mike Wallace interview, I want to say. Well, that, they're not deeming Larry King worthy of this. I guess not because I think that happened on my mission and I think that's what they showed us at its own conference. Anyway. Yeah. This is a this is a great piece. It takes a while. It's like nine thousand words. Like I'm a fast yeah, reader. It's, it's lengthy, all it happens. But it's worth the read. It. It's worth the read. For um, it's definitely worth the read. Worth a mention. And we just want to give a shout out to McKay, even though he won't come on the show. Great job, McKay. <laughs> Can I just read? What, I want to read one little thing because, like I mentioned, that it was very personal from McKay Coppins' perspective. You know, he gets very personal and and a little vulnerable with the reader. But I also really, my I think my favorite part of the whole article was this really short paragraph about M. Russell Ballard. And it got really personal and tender with him too. And it's, uh, it says, uh, M. Russell Ballard told me about a trip he'd made to Greece on behalf of the church. During a visit to a refugee camp, he witnessed a Syrian family get tossed from a dinghy into the Aegean Sea and crawl onto the beach, shivering, soaked, and hungry. As volunteers handed them towels and food, one of the children, a nine-year-old boy named Amer, tore into a package of Oreos and offered the first one to Ballard. 
Today, the cookie sits encased in a small cube on the apostle's desk, a reminder, he says, to reach out to those people running for their lives all over the world. And what a tender and beautiful little story about, about Elder Ballard's priorities and his perspectives, but also about like the generous humanity of this nine-year-old boy who offered, you know, a cookie to an old man (laughs) standing on the beach next to him. Like, I just love everything about that. And and again, that paragraph I think is representative of the whole article, the tenderness, the honesty, uh, just the nice light that we see our church and our experience in the church in throughout. And, you know, and we could go on and on and talk about more of the things that I like. Like you said, we're, we're, we're over our normal amount of time and it, it would be better Listeners, if you if you haven't read this already, do yourself a favor and set aside some time to, to read it yourself because it's really a great piece. There will be links to this as well as all other stories discussed in this episode on thisweekinmormons.com accompanying this post. We also encourage you to follow us on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram where occasionally we post things of interest. Uh, also, quick, some love for our Facebook followers. We did a lot of year in review this week and we've been posting a lot of these articles on Facebook as year in review. And I just want to thank those of you who understand what that means um, with the hashtag twim year in review, because inevitably we have people commenting on stories that we published in, you know, like April. We're just like, this is old news. Why is this here? So I just appreciate those of you who understand the context of what we're doing. I don't know if I need to spell it all out better. I feel bad if anyone's sharing content like, oh my gosh, they shut down the church. I'm like, no, guys, this was in March. We're just looking back. We are reflecting. This happens thank every the, year where people are confused. So, so thank, there's a hashtag. If it's confusing, I apologize. Maybe I'll try to make it really, really, really well spelled out for you. But uh, thanks to all of you who do follow us on there and interact with us in a constructive and positive way. And thanks to our Patreon supporters who pledge money every month to help keep this show thriving. And you can do the same thing at patreon.com slash this week and Mormons. Uh, once again, I will beg you to write reviews for the show. I'm begging you right now on humble knee. Please do it. It'll make me so happy. Look how happy I am. See this? No, this is Jeff at 11 o'clock at night Eastern time. It's not good. I forget I'm, I'm on camera right now. Usually I yawn and hide my emotions and things, Jared, but I can't do it right now. So folks, we appreciate you being here. Hope you have a great week and have a safe new year, whatever that's going to be. I haven't even thought about that. Like, I guess Times Square isn't happening. Is Ryan Seacrest just going to stand alone on a boulevard by himself? I don't know what's happening on any of those fronts. That's What are they doing on New Year's Eve? I've it's just going to be a live feed of Dick Clark's headstone. We're just going to have a somber that's remembrance of Dick Clark. That'll be our New Year's Eve celebration. <laughs> I guess that's all we've got. However you celebrate and whatever that's going to be, have a great new year, everybody. And uh, we will join you again in 2021. So bye-bye 2020. It's been weird. We uh, look forward to The year is to- dying. Let him die. I love Ring Out Wild Bells. It's such a fun song to sing in church because people are like, The year is dying. It's a very somber song. It should be more like celebrate good times. Come on. Anyway. <laughs> right. Jared, thanks for being here, buddy. Appreciate it. I'm glad to be here. Much, much pleasure. Have a great week, everyone. This is This Week in Mormons. I'm Jeff. That's Jared. Be well, be healthy, and be happy. Bye-bye.